you know, history is always, always written by the victors in, in any facet. I think that's always really been the case. You can see it in the art of war. You see it in, in the rise and fall of civilizations. And, and you definitely see it in the, in the realm of sport. And I think basketball is one of the, one of the best examples of this. And taking a look at the landscape of the NBA today, and how we are as a league, and well, not we, of course, I'm not in the fucking league, but how the league is, the way that the games are played, the five-out men, five mentalities, these centers who are six, seven, six, eight, being able to run up and down the court with the guards the same way, being able to step out and shoot threes. I mean, these are things that when, when I was a kid, 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, it's, it's unheard of. You don't, it just doesn't happen. These are completely out of the norm for somebody like me growing up in the in the 2000s. So when did this start? We we can we can always attribute this to Steph Curry. I really do believe that he ushered in the era of small ball. He ushered in the era of the three-point shot being a good shot, a safe shot, a shot that you want your players to take, whether you're in transition, whether you are passing the ball around, whether it's your own shot or somebody is giving you that shot. The three-point ball is now an appropriate shot for anybody on the court to, to take. And and back in, in, in the day, and I say in the day, but this is literally only like 10, 12 years ago, there was a time when that was an absurdity where the, the notion of a three-point shot being the best option in a fast break would make you sit on the bench so fast that you wouldn't even have a chance to think it twice. And I remember being a kid playing, playing on my modified team, and our coach was telling us that the, the ball goes in the basket, so the closest you can get that ball to the basket, the better. They didn't even count threes in that league for me, for me. And so the entire notion, the entire mindset of for us was get the ball as close as you can. Shoot mid-rangers. Shoot them close in. Don't worry about the three-point line. That's not important. It's so unimportant that we're not even going to include it in, in the game because we don't want you shooting out there. And that entire mindset has changed, and you can see it in the youth today. You can see it in the in the AAU games today, the way that these kids are coming up. I think Trey Young is one of the best examples of this. Trey Young is coming up, and, and he's clearly a product of Steph Curry's NBA. His entire game is focused around the three-point line. He's able to drive and kick. He's able to make his own shot. He's able to catch it off the ball and get a shot from there. He can step back. His, his range is limitless. And this is not something that we saw. And when I when I think about what really ushered in that era, it it really was Steph Curry. But it doesn't mean that this wasn't tried before. We can talk about all of the teams that tried their their run and gun styles, but I think that the best example of this happening before it was cool, I guess is the way that you'd say it, before it was something that was was a given or something that we actually considered to be realistic for the NBA today. The 2004, 2005, I would say all the way up to the 2009 Phoenix Suns, coached by none other than Mike D'Antoni, front office comprised of members such as Steve Kerr, the notorious coach of the Golden State Warriors. In the 2003-04 season, this was the last year 
that Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki played together in, in Dallas. And Steve was definitely not considered the the main guy in Dallas. Mark Cuban is notorious for being good with his players. He's had uh, nobody can be good with everybody though. Steve wanted more money. They weren't willing to give him more money, so he left. It happens, you know. He gets to Phoenix, and, and obviously he starts to put up numbers that probably make Mavericks fans cringe when they see him because he immediately turns into one of the best players in the league. And and by all by all accounts, if you're if you're really looking into it, a Mount Rushmore caliber point guard. Of course, when you're a player of that caliber, of you're going to attract suitors, and, and he was no exception. So the Phoenix Suns came calling with Coach Mike D'Antoni, who was coaching them since 2003, 2000, uh, the 02-03 season to be specific. He was the assistant coach in Denver before that during the, the really low-level Denver years. Got the assistant coaching job in Phoenix, made his way up to the head coach in 02-03, and started to coach a couple guys one of whom went by the name of Amari Stoudemire, the other of whom went by the name of Sean Marion. He had another guy named Joe Johnson. You might have heard of him before. Leandro Barbosa out of the country of Brazil. Rajah Bell. And to finish this puzzle, he included and incorporated a point guard that went by the name of Steve Nash. And, and Steve Nash goes to Dallas, and it's quite clear that he's like as I mentioned, he's not happy in Dallas. He wants to get out of there. He was already on the Suns. He got drafted by the Suns, and he goes back to the Suns. And he is the final piece of this of this puzzle. And you could see it almost immediately that this Phoenix Suns team. There's going to be a couple facets to it. Number one is they were going to be incredibly fun to watch. You're really gonna you were gonna have a good time watching the Phoenix Suns play. And Mike D'Antoni incorporated this thing that nobody had really heard before. He called it seven seconds or less. And what he was saying is, I want that ball out of your hands and in a shot of some form in some way in seven seconds or less. He doesn't want to drain the shot clock. He doesn't want to, to run a play or anything of a set nature. He wants this game to be up and down. And that's exactly what they did. They had the perfect team for it. I mean, you, you look at the starting lineup. You start with Steve Nash. You go to Leandro Barbosa, who sometimes came off of the bench, sometimes started. It really depended on what they wanted to do with Joe Johnson. He eventually went to, went to Atlanta, where we all know him as this guy started to average 25 a game. Went to the Nets, kind of dwindled there. He's still, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's still trying to play whatever it, it is what it is back in those days we knew what he was and he and ended up leaving at three we had this this mixture we had this dynamic player by the name of sean marion a, a player who in by today's standards i think would fall into the the names of the all-stars the perennial all-stars people think okay but what about his weird shot if you know sean marion you know he had this really weird release he would shoot it from his chest it was it was it was awkward and, and nobody really knew what to do with it uh, but it went in sometimes and i think in today's nba that's all you really need especially because of the fact that he can guard one to four in today's nba he can guard one to five he can block a shot he can steal a ball he has really long arms, he has decent vision, and he's able to get you 20 a game. Sean Marion's perfect for 2020. He would be one of the, the, the most sought-after players in the league today, and, and, and I, I, I believe that. 
And then at four and at five, depending on what you wanted to do with them, usually at four, they were running Tim Thomas. If you remember Tim Thomas, he was another skinny four, five fringe guy. You can't really play him at five, but you can definitely play him at four. You can even run him, run him at three sometimes, about six, nine, six, ten. And he was able to shoot a mid-ranger. But the big thing, and this is the biggest thing for D'Antoni's offense, he can run up and down the court. That's what he wants. He wants people who can run. And that's what Tim Thomas gave you. And at five, most of the time, on any other team in the mid-2000s, this man's running four. He's clearly a four. Is one Amari Stoudemire. And if anybody who is listening to this remembers Amari Stoudemire in his heyday, what a treat that we got to witness that. That man, an absolute freight train. The big thing I always I always took away from it, you know, when I was playing basketball, my coaches would have us watch tape of players like Amari Stoudemire because they assume that, you know, five foot three kids in uh, backwoods New York can dunk like Amari um, Stoudemire. So we're watching him do these pick and rolls with Steve Nash and they're telling us, hey, he's doing it wrong. Just so, you know, Amari Stoudemire, if you ever watch tape uh, and I'll put I'll put it on the Instagram so you can see it. He, he runs his pick and rolls wrong he goes back to the ball and you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to go with ball side so the the point guard can see you and you can make eye contact and you can be able to to develop the ability to get the ball at at any point of your of your role right but he goes backside because the second he is open he knows that steve's going to get him the ball wherever he needs to get the ball and the second he gets any kind of momentum it's over it's absolutely over History is written by the victors. And this Suns team was one of the most fun regular season teams of all time. You can also make a a case for the Sacramento Kings. Unfortunately, the way it's going, you're going to be able to make probably a very good case for the Milwaukee Bucks of the late 2010s and the early 2020s with Giannis Antetokounmpo. Let's see what happens with them. But there's always teams like this. There's always teams that that play so well in the regular season, and then they get to the playoffs, and for some reason it's a dismantling of their abilities. But for the most part, it's usually just some kryptonite of a team that plays better. For the Kings, it was the Lakers. For the Suns, it was the Spurs. It was always the Spurs. They, they, they would just run up against these prime Duncan Manu, Tony Parker, Spurs teams. And when those guys were in their prime, if they played Popovich basketball, there is really just not a lot you can do, folks. What are you really going to do? One of those guys is going to take over. It doesn't really matter how run and gun your team is. And so to focus back on the point that I was trying to make, how did this era of basketball begin? Who were the first, the, who were the pioneers of the, of the small ball era? Yeah, the, the Phoenix Suns, I would say, are a great testament to what it was. You know, we have Amari, who's running five. He's six foot ten. I mean, you can really make a case that he might be even a little bit shorter than that. But the man gallops up and down the court. He's a freight train with the ball in his hands. There's nothing you can do when he gets momentum. Steve Nash facilitating this high, high speed offense, able to get the ball out to bigs who are shooting, such as like a Channing Fry, guys who are coming off of the bench and shooting threes. 
guys who are, who are in the starting lineup and constantly moving, constantly trying to get up and down the court. What's the problem with this, you might be asking. If you're not old enough to remember the Suns team, the problem is they didn't play any defense. I mean, the Matador-style defense. D'Antoni, in his entirety of his tenure, the stain on his resume, and the reason why he never got that championship is that if you go back all the way to 1948, the beginnings of the NBA as we know it today, I dare you, listener, I dare you to find me one championship team, just one, that won a championship without playing literally any defense. There have been Showtime teams, the Showtime Lakers. They were as high speed as anybody. The average scoring output in the 60s was 116 in 1962. The average for the NBA, for the whole league, 116 points a game for everybody. So don't tell me that the game is sped up. Don't tell me that there haven't been teams that put up a large amount of numbers before. But every single one of these teams, when they get to that point of the playoffs, when they get to that point of a seven-game set, they're going up against the same team for seven consecutive games, and they have no choice but to be able to figure out one team for seven games and try to make sure that they're playing chess instead of checkers. So that other team doesn't figure them out in that seven-game set. Those teams tend to crumble. Because if you are a run-and-gun team, and I know that, I know eventually it's going to be very tough for you to be able to stop my slow-it-down offense. It's easy to maintain the pace. If you are passing well, if you are limiting turnovers, if you are slowing the ball down against a team like that and you limit their pace and make sure that they're they're running at your speed, you take them out of their element and it's easier to beat them. That's what the Spurs did to them like three times. Nonetheless, you know, Mike Tantoni, innovator. He did it too soon, but he is an innovator. We saw it last year in Houston. I mean, his biggest guy on the court was six foot seven. He's always been doing this. He, he knew the NBA was going this way, and he wanted to be on the front end. The, only, the unfortunate part about it is that he did too much too soon and it didn't work. He did too much, he did too soon, and it didn't work. Big men were important back then. If you have a six foot ten center and you're going up against Shaq, you're going up against Tim Duncan or Kevin Garnett, uh, what are you going to do? Amari was, was a good defender. He wasn't the best defender. He was a good rim protector. He wasn't the best rim protector. And there is certainly a difference between rim protection and playing interior defense. And we saw that. We saw them get exposed. We saw that the issues that they would have on perimeter when your only guy who can really guard one to three consistently, Sean Marion, and then when he's on the bench, you have Rajah Bell. That's two guys. What about everybody else? No offense to Steve Nash, but he, he wasn't, he wasn't going to lock you down. He might get a steal or two. I find it so interesting the way that the NBA has changed, where it's gone, what we see today compared to what we saw back then, especially seeing guys coming into the league with that mentality already imprinted into their brains. You know, I was taught basketball by guys who didn't think the three-point line was a big deal. And therefore, my 
teaching of the game of basketball was that of the three-point line is not a big deal. And kids today are getting taught basketball by people who understand the value of a three-point line. And therefore, they are seeing this and they are recognizing it as a true tool and utilizing it. And that's, that's going to be the game we're going to see. Ten years from now, the three-point line is going to be one of the most distinguished pieces of that NBA puzzle. You're going to have to. You know, freak athletes are always going to be there. But the guys who are able to step back 30 feet, do a step back like Luka, and create more space just by getting further away from the basket and still being able to knock that shot down, that's going to become more and more pivotal to the game. Who would have thought? But again, history is written by the victors. And there is no victory for a team that's one-sided. And that Phoenix Suns team, as fun as they were, they were so one-sided. We saw him do it again in Houston, one-sided. And there's nothing you can do about that. So to Mike D'Antoni, I tell you, you're an innovator. Your mark on the game of basketball will always be so poignant to so many. But you were too you were too much too soon, man. We weren't ready for you. We got there and you helped us, but we weren't ready for you yet. But look what it is now.